chapter 10, Jeremiah chapter 10, and tonight's message is on reform and revival. Reform and revival. <clears throat> this chapter, chapter 10, it, it concludes Jeremiah's message, if you remember, that he started in chapter 7 when the Lord said, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So he began, began that in chapter 7. And now in chapter 10, he's going to conclude that message. Chapter 10 begins a section. Chapter 10 through chapters 12. It begins a section of reform and revival after finding the book of the law. The book of the law being the word of God. The finding of the book of the law had a wonderful effect on King Josiah. And you know what? That's what discovering the word of God should do to us. It should have a wonderful effect on us. Josiah, King Josiah realized how far the people had strayed away from God's intention for them. And it touched and it moved King Josiah. And he was tremendously changed. When the word of God was, was discovered again. And that should be the result of God's word touching you. There should be a tremendous change in our lives. And he brought his people into a covenant with God that they would serve him. Again, another result that, that when, when, we're, when we're moved by the word of God and it affects, uh, wonderfully affects us and it changes us, we should bring, be bringing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this chapter, we see that the people was, were substituting something for God. People have always done this. People have had their substitute, and they still do have their substitutes for God. Anyone who is not worshiping the true and the living God, they, they have some substitute for him. It could be that person himself. They could look at themselves in such a way that they're, they're, they're an island, they're a rock, they're, 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 they're all that they need to be. They don't need anybody and, and, and they're number one. And there are a lot of uh, people who actually worship themselves. They are the center of attention. Now others, they worship money and they're willing to do whatever it takes to get rich or to meet their worldly goal. Others worship fame and they'll sell their honor in order to obtain some worthless worldly goal. There are so many substitutes for God. And this is what Jeremiah talks about here. For example, before Abraham trusted in the true and living God, he worshipped idols. We see that in Joshua 24, 2 and 3. During the Jews' years in Egypt, they were exposed to the dis disgusting idolatry of the land. And some of it stayed in their hearts. While Moses was meeting with God on Mount Sinai, remember the people helped by Moses' brother Aaron? They made a golden calf and they worshipped it. At Sinai, the Jews had seen the glory of the Lord. They heard the voice of God. They accepted the law of God. Yet they changed their glory into the image of an ox that ate grass. Idolatry was in their hearts. Now you might say, how does that happen? You know, people want pictures or images or icons of God when they lose his presence in their heart. So let's begin with verses 1 and 2 now of chapter 10. Jeremiah says, Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles or the heathens. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. 
Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. Don't act like the other nations who tried to read their future in the stars. Don't be afraid of their predictions, even though other nations are terrified by them. And, you know, people are still doing that today. What they did in Jeremiah's day, trying to live their lives by other means, even by the Zodiac. You know what the definition of Zodiac is? I needed a dictionary to define the definition of Zodiac. It's an imaginary band in the heavens centered on the ecliptic that encompasses the apparent paths of all the planets except Pluto and is divided into 12 constellations or signs, each taken for astrological purposes to extend 30 degrees of longitude. And they, they, they look to this for the future? I mean, they, I'm, I can't even understand what that means. They want to know what sign they were born under. And I remember, I think it was probably the 70s and 80s. Everybody was, oh, you know, I'm a Serpico and I'm Sagittarius and I'm Verde and all this. And so what? I'm, you know, what, is, what does that prove? What does that do for you? We're born under this sign. What sign were you born under? The cross. <laughs> the cross. You know, the blood of the Christ, the king of glory. You know, again, uh, all that nonsense as though it was real. God warns here, don't learn the way of the Gentile. Don't, don't pick up their religious practices. Astrology is something that was picked up from the pagan world. And a lot of people would like to know the future. I'm sure we'd all like to know the future, especially if it's good news. You know, if we knew the future, it would be a lot easier to make decisions. If we knew the future, we probably wouldn't make as many mistakes as we do, and, and success would be a sure thing. The people of Judah wanted to know the future too, and they tried to discern the future through reading the signs in the sky. God made the earth and he made the heavens, including the stars, that people consulted and worshipped. No one will come to know the future through man-made charts of God's stars. But God who promises to guide you, knows your future. And he will be with you all the way, every step of the way. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my, my, my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. He says, I know the thoughts, that is the plans that I think towards you. I know the thoughts of peace and not evil that I have for you to give you a future and a hope. You see, true hope is based on the revealed word of God, not on dreams and visions and messages from self-appointed prophets. God gave his people a gracious promise to deliver them and he would keep that promise. God makes his plans for his people and their good plans that ultimately bring hope and peace. There's no need for you to be afraid or discouraged. He won't reveal your future to you, but he'll walk you with uh, walk through it with you as the future unfolds. You know, if God told us a lot of the things that we've experienced in life, if God says you're going to go through this and this and this, we would probably say forget it. I don't want to know that. 
You know, he told Paul when he got saved what he was going to do, but he didn't unfold. He didn't tell Paul, well, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time in prison. And a lot of people are going to hate you. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be stoned and left for dead. And Lord, is that the ministry? I don't know that I want to, I don't want to go through with it. But he has a future for us. Some good, some bad, but you know what? He will go with us every step of the way. And he says he will deliver us from it all. Again, he makes his plans for us. That, you know, that, that will bring hope and peace. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be discouraged. We're not to trust the stars, but we should be trusting in the one who made the stars. Think about that. Look at verses 3 and 5. 3 through 5. He said, for the customs of the peoples are futile. That is, they're vain, they're empty, they're customs, they're practices. For one, notice, for one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Basically, he says, these gods can't do anything for you. They can't do any evil. They can't do you any good. Now, these are the verses that some people look at here, at Jeremiah's condemnation of idolatry, to be a condemnation of today's Christmas tree, which is totally irrational and nonsense. Jeremiah isn't talking about Christmas trees here. Nobody in Jeremiah's day had a Christmas tree. He's talking to his people about worshiping idols. And and he supports and he strengthens his warning with reasons. He says the customs of the peoples are futile. He says their practices and what they do, they're foolish, they're empty, they're worthless. Jeremiah is clearly talking about idolatry here. He's sarcastically ridiculing the the idolatry of his day. And he explains in detail by making a comparison between the living God and idols. And he's describing here, verses 3 through 5, how idols are made. He says somebody goes out and takes their axe. They go out to the woods. They cut down a tree. Then he gets that tree home and he shapes it into an image. He decorates it with silver and gold. Then he has to nail it down so that it doesn't fall over. And and that's their God. It's like worshiping a scarecrow. Now, if if at Christmas time, you know, you fall on your knees in front of your Christmas tree and you worship it, you have a serious problem. Then Jeremiah's warning here could be referring to you. But I don't even know of, a, of even an, un, an unsaved pagan in the country who worships a Christmas, Christmas tree. They use it as a decoration, then it's thrown away with the trash. You see them right after, all out by the curb, thrown out or burned in the fireplace. Not safe, but they do. Christmas is over. The tree's gone. Look at verses 6 through 7. Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord... You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Here, Jeremiah speaks about the incomparable greatness of God. 
God is great. There's no debate about that. God is great in his power. God is infinite and great in his wisdom. He's great in his resources. You know, in his very being, he's great. God is also great in his character, in his purpose. He's just, he's great in his, in, in his just and good principles. He's just about, he's just in everything that he does. Therefore, God is worthy of all of our worship because of his greatness. His greatness of power. It rests on the greatness of his character, who he is. And Jeremiah makes the point twice. He says, the Lord cannot be compared to anyone or anything. Nothing even comes close. How ridiculous it is to turn from the true and the living God to worship the things around you and get your guidance from the zodiac, from the stars and the planets. The psalmist said in Psalm 23, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Verse 8. But they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Jeremiah says, those who put their trust in a block of wood, even though it's nicely carved and it's beautiful and it's nicely decorated, they're foolish. The simplest person who worships God is wiser than the wisest person who worships a worthless substitute because this, certain, this, this person has discerned, uh, uh, you know, who God really is. In what or whom do you place your trust? In Colossians 2, Paul, it's a great chapter about Paul's warning for substituting things for Jesus Christ. You all, we all have need in Christ. All, all, all that you need is in Christ. You have all that you need in Christ. Paul said in Colossians 2, 4, he says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. In other words, he says, don't substitute man's ideas, man's opinions for God's word. He says in Colossians 2, 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. He's saying, since you have everything that you need in Jesus Christ, why substitute that or substitute Christ with man's empty philosophy. He also says in Colossians 2, verses 16 through 17, so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. He says, don't substitute religious regulations for God's grace. And then in Colossians 2, 18 and 19, he said, let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. He's saying don't substitute exciting but empty religious experience for spiritual nourishment for Christ. Because he says in Colossians 2, 9, 10, in him, in Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And notice, you are complete in him. You don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. You are complete in him. He didn't fill you halfway to need to be filled halfway with something else. 
In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You have it all in Jesus Christ. Verse 9. He goes on to say, Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple are their clothing. They are all, notice, they are all the work of skillful men. Now, Tarshish was located at the west boundary of the ancient world. It's possibly what is known now as Spain. It was a source of silver and tin, lead and iron for the city of Tyre. The location of Uphaz isn't known. Instead, it could be a metallurgical, uh, metallurgical term for refined gold. No matter how well made or how beautiful idols are, they can never have the power and the life of the true and the living God. Verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure His indignation. The true nature of God is seen in comparison with the things that the heathen worships. The nature of God. First of all, the nature of God, God is real. The Lord Jehovah, the Lord God, the, the Lord is the true God. He's not only superior to heathen gods because they're non-existent. He alone, Jehovah alone is the religion that's based on facts. Its first proof is this, God is. God is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, Therefore concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol, notice, is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. 1 Corinthians 10.20 An idol is the creation of man's imagination, Paul said. It's the creation of man's imagination. Not only are idols the creation of man's imagination, rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice. Notice they sacrifice to demons and not God. They're not only man's imagination, but the idols are demons. They're sacrificed to demons and not God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons, Paul said. Worshiping God is not about having a mature spiritual mentality. Basing our worship of God on, on, on some, you know, supported opinion or, or, or nor good morals with, you know, a, a warm, feel-good emotions to go with them. But without any object for that emotion to rest on. It's the worship of God who exists. The God who exists. The living God. Otherwise, it's nothing but a delusion. A mistake. And everybody who holds this truth in the highest regard, all right, if you hold God's truth in the highest regard, you have to reject that. But Paul said, it's, it, it, there is no other God. A worship, an idol is nothing but, but a, a, a thing and a demon. Secondly, the nature of God, God is living. God is living. The word of God is not just a name for all, you know, forces of the universe. 
You know, that God is in the tree. God is a tree and God is a... That's, that's not it. It's not just named for all forces of the universe. All faith confer, uh, confirms that he's more. No worship is right on without the belief that God is spirit, thinking, willing, living. God is truly the, the, the one self-existent life, the life in which all other life is contained. Also, the nature of God, God is an everlasting king. He is eternal and he is changeless. He's not a God of the past alone, but equally as alive today and will be in the future. He's not only the creator who formed the world in the beginning, but he's the king who now sustains it. He rules it. Our worship isn't just reverence for what he's done. But it's a constant appreciation of what he's doing and a real and effective communion with a living, acting God. Fourthly, the nature of God. These thoughts about the nature of God should bring about submission and reverence of him. Because none compare with him. And all are under his power. His eternal presence calls for constant attention and requires communication in everything that we do. Verse 11. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. God's message to these idolaters was that in their false gods, that their false gods, who didn't have anything to do with creating the universe, are going to ultimately perish from God's universe. Verse 12. He, God, has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. Compared to the false gods, the false idols, the Lord, Jehovah God, was responsible for creation. He made the earth. He stretched out the heavens. He made the stars and the planets. Only God has the power and the wisdom to do something of such magnitude. His nature is seen in creation. His power is revealed in the original creation of all things. His wisdom is seen in the order that's established in all creation. I mean, when you think about the stars and the planets and the sun and the moon and how they rise and they, they, they set and they, and, and they go through their orbits... All set in order by God. His wisdom is seen in the order that he established in all of creation. A real world can only come from a real God. A living world must receive its life from something that has life. A living world must receive its life from an original source of life. He always has been. He always is and always will be. He made the stars. The stars are, are in their places because God put them there. He placed them where he wanted them. And he didn't ask you or me how he wanted, how we wanted them arranged. And what I really love is Psalm 147.4. He counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. He knows how many there are and he knows their names. Which is how much more important are you and me? In comparison to stars. This is his universe. Therefore, he's the, he's the only one who's worthy of our worship. Now, we might make fun of people 
of long ago who cut down a tree to make a god. We call ourselves intelligent and civilized. And yet people today spend millions of dollars to try to find out what the future holds for them going to fortune tellers, astrologers, palm readers, all those kinds of things. If people were so intelligent, why don't they worship the true and the living God and, and, and get into reality? The scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9, 10, Proverbs 1, 7, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Verse 13. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. His nature, summer, spring, winter, fall, the rain, the thunder, the lightning, his nature is seen in the present works in the world. The floods of waters, again, they flow in obedience to God's voice. The clouds, the wind, the lightning, the rain, they all follow his directions. Genesis 8, 22 says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. Nahum 1.3 says, The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his seed. Satan has no power over the weather. And we hear about the drought today, and I've said this many times. You know, we have every reason in the world other than God's judgment. The Bible says God holds back the rain. And we saw it in the Old Testament many times when when God would hold back the rain and the people couldn't grow crops and the economy went bad and and there was no food. And what are we seeing today? We'll blame everything or we'll point to everything for, for why there's no rain. Instead of looking up in God and saying, Lord, we messed up. We're We're in sin. And we need to change our lives. We need to get right with you, Lord. The great energy of the physical world proves that there's an energizing power behind it. You know, the universe isn't some type of beautiful crystal or some fossil relic of of the past. The world is full of power. It's constantly changing and it's constantly developing fresh ways of energy. These kinds of actions shows us, it implies that there's a real and living creator. Therefore, he must also be the present ruler today and the everlasting king. Verses 14 and 15. Everyone is dull hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image for his molded image is falsehood and there is no breath in them. Verse 15. They are futile, a work of errors in the time of their punishment. They shall perish. Jeremiah says every man is dull hearted. It means brutish. They're a fool. They act like an animal thinking they could take a tree, shape it into a man and think it's an intellectual being and then, you know, and and then act as if it has life. I mean, how foolish is that? To pretend it's real and it has life. They've cut it down. They've shaped it. They've molded it. They nailed it down so they won't fall over and then believe it has life. Verse 16. The portion of Jacob is not like them. 
For he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, and the Lord of hosts is his name. God, who is the portion of Jacob, Jacob's another name for Israel, but God, who is the portion of Jacob or Israel, is not like the idols. Jeremiah calls the portion of Jacob that he might preserve the people in the pure truth of the law, which they had learned, and they had been favored by God. So he draws the attention of the Israelites away from all the vain imaginations of men or of the heathens. The portion then of Israel is not like idols. In what way? Because God is before all things. He's the creator of heaven and earth. I mean, how can, how can you worship something and, and have faith in something that you made when God is was before all things were made. That's what Jeremiah is saying here. He's the creator of heaven. Why would you worship something that's been created? He, therefore, he's before all things and he's the creator of heaven and earth. Then he says, Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. That is, Israel belonged to God. God is the sufficiency of his people. Verse 17. Gather up your wares from the land, O inhabitant of the fortress. Jeremiah here is warning of the coming destruction. He says, pack your bags and be ready to leave because the siege is about to begin. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them that they may find it so. Jeremiah says, suddenly the Lord is going to throw you out of this land. He's going to crush you until not one of you is left. He says, I will throw all of you who live, throw out all of you who live in this land. I will pour great troubles upon you. And at last you will feel my anger. Verses 19 through 21. He says, Woe is me for my hurt. My wound is severe. But I say, truly this is an infirmity and I must bear it. My tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. Verse 21. For the shepherds have become dull-hearted... And have not sought the Lord, therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. In these verses, Jeremiah uses the picture of nomads who are wandering through the wilderness trying to pitch their tents. And the shepherds of the nations are the evil leaders responsible for the misery and the hardship of the people. In verse 21, he says, The flocks shall be scattered. The flocks are the people of Judah. Instead of the leaders guiding the people, the leaders were leading them astray. Verse 22. Behold, the noise of the report has come and a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah desolate, a den of jackals. Listen, he says, the enemy is close by. They're coming closer and closer with a great noise, a great commotion of clashing spears and strutting horses. And all of this commotion is of a huge army that's coming from the north. <clears throat> and the towns of Judah, they're going to be destroyed and they're just going to be a hangout for the jackals. Verse 23 and 24. O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. O oh Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. 
Jeremiah says here in verses 23 and 24 that no man can walk correctly apart from the revelation of God in his word. You want to know how to walk right and where to go? Read the word of God. It's our guidebook through this world. The minute a man turns from the word of God and they go off the wall, they go off the track, they derail, they go on a detour. And that's our natural, that's our natural course apart from the revelation of God's word. The day we're born, we start to go wrong because it's in our, in our DA, thanks to Adam. When man gets away from the word of God, man, we always go the wrong way. We do what seems to be right in our own eyes. We follow the dictates of our own heart. And Jeremiah says here, it's not in man to direct his steps. It's not in us. We're dependent upon the all-knowing God for our direction in every area of our lives. And that's why we need a shepherd. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ is our great shepherd. Solomon said in Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Proverbs 26, 12, uh, Solomon said, do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs 3, 7, Solomon says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Jeremiah said earlier in Jeremiah 7, 24, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts. And they went backward and not forward. God is able to direct our lives so superior to our own ability. But a lot of people, sometimes they're afraid of God's will. They're afraid of God's direction, God's path for their life. But Proverbs 12, 15 says, he who heeds counsel is wise. He will give you wisdom if you're willing. Do not be afraid of the will of God. Do not be afraid of the direction that God will take you in life. If God gave the people what they deserve, they'd be destroyed. And thank God he's not dealt with us according to Psalm 103.10, where it says, according to our sins, nor that he hasn't, according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Thank God he hasn't dealt with us based on our sin. Ezra said in Ezra, in Ezra 9.13, he says, God punishes us less than our iniquities deserve. Thank you, Lord. Because God many times mixes his mercy with his judgment. Verse 25. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name. For they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made him his dwelling and made his dwelling place desolate. The nations attacking Judah deserve punishment for wanting to destroy God's chosen people. God called on Babylon. To do his work, to, do, to be his instrument to chasten the Jews, not to wipe them out. But the Babylonians, man, they were ruthless in the way that they treated Judah. Jeremiah here wasn't angry and he wasn't complaining. He was pleading for the Lord to keep his promises to Abraham and to protect the nation from being totally wiped out. And God answered the prayer. And God eventually brought an end to the savage, you know, cruel rule of Babylon. And it was based on this request here that Jeremiah ended his temple sermon that began back in chapter 7. And the results, according to chapter 26, <laughs> Jeremiah was arrested and he was sentenced to die. Rather than hearing and obeying the true word of God, the leaders, the priests, would rather commit murder 
They'd rather murder Jeremiah than listen to the message that he had for them. But as the Lord promised, he saved Jeremiah from being killed. But Jeremiah was banished man, from the temple in chapter 36, verse 5. So in closing, I wonder how many preachers today would boldly preach a message that they knew would result in them being dismissed. And I wonder how many in the congregation would be willing to accept that message and obey it. God did not promise Jeremiah an easy ministry. You can go back to chapter 1 and see that when he got his call from God into the ministry. He didn't promise Jeremiah an, an easy ministry. But he did promise Jeremiah that he would keep him strong. And God kept his promise to Jeremiah. And you know what? He will keep his promises to all his servants today. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Father, for the, Father, for the encouragement of Jeremiah uh, the word to Jeremiah, Lord, and, and the message that you give, Lord. Father, help us to be not just hearers of the word, Lord, but doers of the word, God. For as it says in James, they are the ones that will be blessed. So, Lord, may we listen and take heed to what the Spirit has to say to the church, Lord, especially in these days as things become darker and more radical, Father, more distressing. But Lord, we have, we have you, Lord. And you promise to deliver us from all of our temptations, all of our tribulations, God. As long as we commit ourselves to you and stay close to you, God. And depend upon the re revealed word of God, Lord. We thank you, Father. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Sunday morning, we're going to be back in 1 Corinthians 13, and uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 13. We're going to start 13, and we're going to be going through verses 1 through 3. And uh, we're going to be looking at a more excellent way, and that is the way of love. And as I was going through that chapter and looking at what, what God's description and definition of love is, you know, if we, the church, followed applied and lived agape love and people applied agape love, there wouldn't be violence, there wouldn't be wars.